Welcome to, to Redemption Flagstaff. My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. Delighted to be with you. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7, and we have three and a half chapters to go through today, so we're going to get moving pretty quick. So turn your Bibles there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, I believe our interns will bring Bibles up the, the aisle there. Just slip your hand up if you want to follow along in a Bible. If you don't own one, you do now. It's a free gift to you, so just do that as they come up, and they'll get you one. And there's a $100 bill in each Bible, uh, and so there you go. Now you want them, okay? This is the Word of God. It's more valuable than gold, okay? Just kidding. So uh, that being said, Exodus chapter 7, three and a half chapters. Let me give you a recap if you're new to the church, new to the book of Exodus. In essence, here's what you have. You have the people of God who are Israel. God raised up a people for himself in the early parts of the Bible in a book called Genesis. In chapter 12, he calls a man named Abraham and says, Abraham, out of you, I'm going to make a whole nation of people. That people I will bless, that they will be a blessing to the world. Okay? That people becomes Israel. Israel is brought into captivity. They sojourn and move into Egypt willingly and welcomed by Egypt. They move into the land of Goshen, which we'll talk about further. They live there, they reside there, but as they grow in power and in strength, Egypt doesn't like that. The Pharaoh then begins to oppress them, tries to kill them, and now they are enslaved and in captivity in Egypt. God is not having that. He raises up a man named Moses that will then be his uh, kind of representative and his agent to bring deliverance and salvation uh, and pull the people of God out of slavery and captivity and bring them to the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay? So that's where we pick up the story in chapter 7. This is God's kind of means of getting his people out. Okay, Pharaoh has oppressed and oppressed and oppressed. He's a very bad guy. And in the midst of this, God is saying, I'm going to get him out and you just better do what I say. Otherwise, this will not go well for you. And so he is going to dispense 10 different plagues. We will cover the first nine of them today. Okay, we'll look at each one through a similar rubric because that's the way the Bible presents them to us. And then we'll talk about why this is so important at the end. I'm going to give you the main theme, the main purpose for what we're talking about today right now. In other words, I hope at least you know this and believe this and learn this by the time you leave here today. And it's very simple. God is ultimately about God. Okay? Ultimately, God is primarily about his glory, his renown, his name, his fame, his glory in the world. Like this is God's primary desire. Now this pushes against some of our modern sensibilities because if I were to come up here and say, listen, I want every one of you to do everything you do for the glory of Vince, that sounds weird, right? And, and, and genuinely, if that ever happened, you politely, and maybe not even so politely, you get out of your chair, you walk up the aisle, and you leave and never come back. But, but God, this, throughout the scriptures, this is God's calling to us. I do this for the glory of my name. I do this for my name's sake. Today is one of those primary examples and stories where we see this come true. And, and believe me, we're going to talk about why this is so necessarily important for the people of God, that we understand this and we get this. Because if we miss it, believe me, you miss the rest of the scriptures. Like you miss why we have the Bible. You miss why we're on mission. You miss why we're in the church. You miss God. And so that's why this is so vital. So let's jump in real quick here. We're going to work through and then we'll cycle back as to the importance of why God being about God is actually a really good thing for us. 
All right, here we go. Exodus chapter 7, we'll start in verse 14 with the first cycle that comes out in the plague. You'll notice on the screen, we'll kind of be giving you this little chart you can follow so you know where we're at in the story. Here we go. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. So far, Pharaoh, you have done nothing but evil to the people of God. So far, Pharaoh, if you don't shape up, this is going to go poorly for you. This is God kind of this reaching out this first warning. Some things are about to go down because you have hardened your heart. Your heart is against me and against my will for you and for my people. Now, here's something we have to understand as a backdrop to this entire text and a backdrop to the book of Exodus is that humanity's desire is not to want God nor the things of God. This wasn't the way it was always supposed to be. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the foundations and origins of the world, God created this world for us to know him, cherish him, love him, and obey him. But even in the midst of perfection, we didn't handle perfection super well. Man rebels against God, and by chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, sin has entered the world in disobedience. By chapter 4, the first moment that mankind was outside the perfect garden with God, we see a brother murder a brother. Like this, the first chance we have to be outside his presence, we kill each other. Okay? By chapter 6, we know that the world had become so corrupt, so depraved, so broken, so rude and terrible to one another that God had to cause a great flood to start over. Like Our proclivity since the beginning has been God, I got this. God, no thank you. I'm going this direction. This is where I want to go. I don't care what you call to me. I'll do my thing. Now, since this is true, and it's, it's replete in the scriptures, what we have to then understand is that the only reason that you and I still breathe, still live, and right now are not tearing each other apart, the reason why Ben does not get up on stage and charge me and kill me is because of the grace of God. It's not because Ben's a good dude, which he is. It's because of the grace of God. Colossians 1 tells us this. He says that through God, he holds, through Christ, he holds all things together in this world. This world does not function if Jesus is not holding it together. You and I would tear each other apart. The world would cease to exist. It would all go very poorly if Jesus wasn't holding the world together by his grace. Because we don't deserve it, he dispenses it. Because he is the one who's powerful. So, so hear me, this is the backdrop of the text. We have to then step back and realize, okay, if, if this is what God is doing, he's holding us together. As Pharaoh is saying, no, 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 I want me, I want my kingdom, I want my pride, I want my, my, my. God in this moment is saying, listen, you're headed that direction. The only reason you haven't done it yet is because of my grace. And what he begins to do is pull back a bit of his grace on Pharaoh's life. The things that even sustained Pharaoh up to this point, God's like, listen, you're cruising for a destination that you want to go to, and I'm not going to stop you anymore. 
So Pharaoh's heart becomes hardened. And throughout this process, God continually is going to say, and you know why this is happening? For my glory. You know why this is happening? For my namesake. You want to know why this is happening? That the world may know that I am Lord. And so that's the first warning. Now, now just um, by way of just kind of helping us kind of enter into this, because that sounds kind of difficult. God kind of orchestrating this, this thing and then being upset. So think about it this way. Um, I have a, and I, I cleared this with staff that I was, it's already been like four weeks since the last time I used my kids in the illustration so I can come back to it today. Uh, and so James, he's, he just turned two and, and he's the kid that by the time I turn 36, he'll give my wife and I a heart attack, right? I'm 35 and nine months, right? So I got three months left to go. He just charges at life at 100 miles an hour. If there's something to jump off of, he jumps off it, right? If there's some body of water to jump in, though he can't swim, he'll jump in it, right? If there's a knife to grab, he'll start slashing people. Like, he's just out of control. The other night, literally a month ago, V and I, my wife and I were sleeping in bed, and I hear the TV running. This is like 2 a.m. in the morning. He's two years old. I walk outside. James got up, climbed up out of his, like, six-foot-tall crib, just full Tom Cruise in it, right? Just climbs out, climbs across, unlocks his door somehow, gets uh, into the living room, gets a snack, turns on the TV, and starts watching television at 2 a.m. in the morning. Now, here's why I tell you that. If I let him do those things, if I don't safeguard my home, if I don't create new locks and new restrictions, I am a terrible parent. Okay, so it, right, like we have knives on our counter. He has a step stool he can get up onto the counter. If I leave the step stool, I'm a bad parent, right? Like if I don't put covers on the doorknob because he knows how to get out of them somehow, right? I'm a bad parent. Now, I'm not saying, you, like if you don't do that, I'm not trying to judge you. Not, I'm saying like just for me, like I know I need to protect. Finley and James only live because I create an environment that sustains life. Now, ultimately, God, right, you get that, but you see what I'm saying. If I allow the house to fall into despair, I don't feed my children, et cetera, et cetera, that's on me, I'm a terrible parent. Now, they'll see it as oppressive and restrictive, they'll see it as, man, let me do my thing, but no, 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 I know more than they know, I see more than they see, I understand what they cannot understand. We are in this scenario that I am to James as God is to us, and we need to let go of this belief that we are autonomous creatures. We need to let go of this belief that we all of a sudden got this figured out, and we are capable in and of ourselves. It's just not factually accurate to humanity, both in truth, in our scriptures, and in experience. If you just look at the history of the world, we haven't, like you would think, all these thousands of years in, we would have figured it out by now. It's just gotten worse. We treat each other terribly across the world. We don't figure this out on our own, okay? God, God the backdrop of this is a God who, who, who so is about his glory, which is so about his name, that he cares enough that then his love flows from that and gives people the restrictions necessary that life would be best lived, Okay? that ultimately he would write a bigger story than the one that we could see. So here we go. That's the backdrop. Verse 17, let's look at the first plague. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. 
Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I'll strike the water that's in the Nile, so I'll turn it into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, canals, ponds, and pools of water, so they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned, went into his house, did not even take any of this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink water from the Nile. So God's action, right, goes in. Let my people go. Sends Moses and Aaron, equipped with the staff, to go and bring this first plague. If you don't listen, this is coming. The first plague comes. All of the Nile and all the water derived from the Nile is turned to blood in an instant, which is just wild and crazy. Now, you have to understand a bit of the backdrop of what the Nile meant to Egypt, and it was massive, the Nile, like, it meant everything to the Egyptian kingdom. They worshipped it as a god. They believed that all their provision came from it. Their entire economy was mostly based on it. Everything came from the Nile. It was their strength. Here's what God is doing. He's saying, listen, you think that the Nile is God, that the Nile is strong, that the Nile is provision. I'm those things. I'm strong. I'm provider. I orchestrate the world. It's my economy. He's intentionally attacking the very thing that they would try and idolize above him and say, uh-uh, it's me. Like, I'm that for everyone, whether you believe it or not, okay? And so he's coming at Pharaoh hard just to start off this initial bit. Now, Pharaoh's response to this, okay? It says that, the, well, first of all, the magicians do the same. His little minions, they craft a similar response. This leads to Pharaoh saying, eh, I don't believe it. Forget this. He hardens his own heart, okay? He pulls away from God. He does not listen. He will not let the people go. Plague number two. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I'll plague the whole country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come into your house, into your bedroom and on your bed, into the houses of servants and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your servants. Listen, one frog, cute, thousands of frogs, a horror film, right? Like, like just close your eyes and think for a minute, what's the scariest thing ever? It's thousands of frogs, everywhere. And so here, here's the thing, because the people of Egypt, Pharaoh himself is looking over the kingdom after each and every plague, and he will not let them go. There's this reality to he is close to the things of God. Now, um, I have another picture for you. This is the Egyptian, uh, go to the, it should be like Egyptian frog, if you see that. Yeah, so this is Heket. This is the Egyptian fertility goddess on the right-hand side. Um, I want you to respond. The face, right? What, what is that? It's a frog. You guys are good, okay? Did good, good job. So it's a frog, right? So um, Heket was the Egyptian fertility goddess, and it's a frog. Here's what God's doing here. He's saying, listen, you, you think that this goddess is the one that oversees life? No. I oversee life. 
He's, he's constantly turning the idols up against the people of Egypt and saying, no, you think this, I'm greater, I'm bigger, I'll show you, I'll control it. I control life, you don't control life. This is my thing, this is not your thing, okay? Now, the next one. Um, actually, real quick, uh, the response by Pharaoh. Uh, the magicians, again, do the same. So they also replicate the frogs, which, again, this just seems to exacerbate the problem. Like, I would be like, hey, make less frogs, not more frogs. But he makes more frogs, and now there's more frogs. And so Pharaoh says, Moses, go back to your God and say, please stop. And so Moses goes to God, and hear me, he intercedes and pleads on behalf of Egypt, the enemy, that God's wrath would relent. Again, did you hear? so Moses, the, the chosen kind of risen agent of God, intercedes on behalf of the enemy that, 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 that the wrath of God might be relented upon that enemy. And we've said, right, this is, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And hopefully you're getting those threads throughout this whole story as well. Pharaoh says, please stop. God stops. Pharaoh says, ah, never mind. Keeps the people, will not let them go. Plague three. Verse 16, then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. So again, God's response, let my people go, sends Moses and Aaron, they does not listen, so here comes the plague, gnats everywhere, which again, just sounds terrible, buzzing around your ears, imagine gnats just coming out through the floors right now, it would cause chaos. Now here's what's interesting, in plagues two, three, and four, plague two, frogs come from the water. Plague three, the gnats come up from the land and the ground. Plague four, they'll come from the sky, which will be the flies. Now again, at every level, at every piece of geography, God is saying, I control those two. It doesn't matter if it comes from the water, it doesn't matter if it comes from the land, comes from the sky. I am the God of all things in all places at all times. This is who I am. This is a giant coming out party to God to Egypt that his name would be magnified in the world. This is who I am. Pharaoh's heart was hardened again, and he refuses God. This starts the second cycle of plagues. And I know we're moving fast. We're covering nine. We're going to circle back. It'll make sense. Plague four next, the start of the second cycle of plague. Verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. As he goes out to the water, say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign shall happen. God goes in, let my people go. Moses and Aaron sense the language here is a bit more intense in the Hebrew. In other words, Moses and Aaron are like, hey, you really need to listen. Like this is serious. You saw what's going to happen. It's only going to get progressively worse. Please let the people go. Moses refuses. And so the plague comes, flies absolutely everywhere. But here's a delineation. God says, these flies will only come to where you're at. But for Goshen, where the Israelites live, there'll be no flies, right? 
Now, what's interesting, if you go back to Genesis chapter 47, that is when the Israelites come and inhabit Goshen. It was given to them by the Pharaoh that was there back in Joseph's day, a Pharaoh that liked Israel. It all went well, so they were given this land. Now, here's what's interesting in Genesis chapter 46 is that Goshen was actually deemed unclean by the people. It was deemed as a place you do not live, right? Like, think Yuma, okay? And so, just kidding, just kidding, Yuma. So, okay, so... It's a place you don't go. But notice this beautiful story here is that the place that was a once unclean, a place that was deplorable and you did not go was now the sanctuary of salvation for the people of God. God in the business of restoration and redemption. It would have been a question of when they first got there, like, we got to live here? Like, like, Egypt's pretty big, God. Like, can we go to that neck of the woods? Like, I, like can we go to Scottsdale? right? If you like that sort of thing. Flagstaff is probably the best, but can we go here? No, no, you're going to live and reside in this land because there's coming a day where that will be the place of restoration and hope. God, again, writing a story we cannot see. He sees what we cannot see, knows what we cannot know, understands what we can understand, and he is about himself and saving his people. Okay, so um, uh, moving, uh, continuing on, okay, ready? Uh, No, but here's, sorry. Um, Why does all of this happen? that they may know that I am the Lord. Right? Fairy, you want to know why this is going down like this? Do you want to know why I keep coming back to you, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go? It's that you would know that I am the Lord. It's it's for his glory. Notice that. So hear me. This is not God did not love Israel. God did not want to save it. Those things are very true. But at the end of the day, God is about God. He's about them knowing that he is the Lord. Okay? Again, we'll unpack why that's good news for us in just a moment. Um, I do have a quick, this is actually a file and a picture that we found in the National Archives of the actual plague uh, back in Exodus. And so there you go. We thank, thank you for that. Um, Plague five. We're into chapter nine now. Verse one says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing belongs to the people of Israel shall die. God's action, let my people go. Moses and Aaron sent the next plague, severe plague upon all your livestock, all your provision, all the things that you would say, hey, because of this, we have security. God comes in and says, no, 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 they're not your security. I'm supposed to be your security. I am God. I created those things. Those are for me. Again, God trying to separate himself one of the things that you begin to realize in these things is now the staff has gone away. So before, it was kind of Aaron comes in, waves his staff, and all this stuff happens. God pulls away the staff in an effort. I think there was probably this, oh, man, the staff is where the magic is, right? It's like Harry's wand, right? Like, if, well, if we just get his staff away from him, then none of this will happen. God's like, dude, I, I'm not boxed into a staff, guys. And so all of a sudden, he's just dispensing now these plagues for his glory that he might save a people And he's calling Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's response, the magicians are all of a sudden absent. 
right? They start fleeing. They'll show up one more time. But they have now proclaimed that these things that they could not do themselves must be done by the finger of God, they say. This tacit, this real acknowledgement, rather, that they cannot do the things that they're seeing. So they're beginning to understand this God's more superior, God's more glorious, specifically the God of the Hebrews is more glorious, the God of the Hebrews is greater, stronger, more powerful, etc., 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 plague six. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and, Moses, and let Moses throw them in the air on the side of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land and become boils breaking out in the sores of man and beasts throughout all the land of Egypt, pretty straightforward, okay? Only difference that we have here is as they go in, the person that goes in and actually then executes the plague this time is just Moses alone. It used to be just Aaron, but now it's Moses. We see Moses stepping into the calling he was given back in Exodus chapter 3 by God to lead his people, which will become absolutely necessary moving into the next chapters of Exodus all the way to the end, okay? We see Moses step up. Pharaoh's response. The magicians this time are there, afflicted with boils as well. They start freaking out. And this time we see that for the first time that Pharaoh's heart is hardened by God himself. And he refuses to let them go. Plague seven, the start of our third cycle. Then the Lord, in verse 13, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I'll send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people. Ready? So that you may know that there is none like me in the earth. Why is this happening? So you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Verse 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that because... All of this for my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I'll cause a heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was found until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and livestock in the house. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. God's action, Moses and Aaron are sent. They confront Pharaoh. There's a longer dialogue that goes on here. And he's like, look, Pharaoh, I'm coming right for you now. You're not listening. We're into the third cycle of the plagues. You better listen because it's only getting worse. Let the people go. He refuses. The plague comes upon in the form of thunder, fire, and hail from sky and begins to decimate the nation of Egypt. Why does this happen? So that they will know that I am the Lord of the world. So that my name would be made great amongst the nations. Okay, do, you, do you see why all this? That God would be about God. That's why, that's, why, that's why this is happening. Again, there's other reasons underneath that, but the ultimate reason that God is, well, he's about God. Now, here's what I find so beautiful about this part of the text. God just said, hey, this is about to go down, that you would know who I am. And then the first thing he says, 
the first action following the statement that you would know who I am, that my name would receive world renown, is one of mercy and grace. So, so he calls Isaiah, this is about to go down. I want the world to know who I am. So guess what? Here's what I want you to do. You can spare yourself from this. Get inside your houses, hide your livestock, hide your servants, hide your people, hide yourself. I want you to be saved. I'm giving you the option. If you fear me, if you know me, because that's my chief goal, I want to be known. So if you know me, hide yourself. This word of mercy and grace is this first moment outside the gate of, I want you to know who I am. I'm one who is merciful and gracious. Exodus will later tell us that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, forgiving the sin and the iniquity of thousands. This is who God is, and he's revealing himself to the world. Now, most people didn't listen, didn't heed, and so a lot of Egypt was destroyed, okay? Pharaoh's response to this, his magician's gone again. He begins to repent. He literally says, I have sinned. The Lord is right. I'm wrong. And it sounds like we're turning the corner here. Like, great, we've done it. He'll let the people go. In fact, what he does here, he actually just kind of gives this qualified repentance. He's like, ah, yeah, okay, I'm sorry about that but I'm not going to let you fully, I'm not going to fully listen to what God has to say. And hear me, that's just not what God's called us to. It's not this, I'll do a little bit of my thing and a little bit of your thing. It's no, 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 we do all of his thing, okay? And that's what we're called to. So here we go. He says, no, we're back to plague number eight, Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson that I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Ready? That you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. They shall cover the face of the land so no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after Hail, the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came to earth to this day. God's action, Moses and Aaron are sent again. I've hardened his heart. He will not let them go that the world may see these signs that your sons and their sons and their sons will know that I am the Lord. God is about God. Locusts swarm and devour everything. If you haven't seen a locust, they're really ugly and they devour plants and trees. And so whatever was left that could have been been like the crutch that Egypt said, ah, it's not that bad. We still got this. Now gone. Okay? God's saying, listen, you have nothing. I control everything. I'm the God of everything. I'm the ruler. I'm the king. Pharaoh, you're not. Why? That Pharaoh would know who the Lord is, okay? Now, Pharaoh's uh, servants start to respond to this, and they start realizing, dude, we, we gotta stink and listen to this guy. Do, do you see what's happening? They say, Egypt is ruined. Like, th- this hasn't gone well for us. Like, let, we, can we stop? We, can we turn around? Just let him go already. And so Pharaoh, again, kind of repents, kind of agrees, but not really. His heart is hardened, and so he refuses to let the people go. We get to our last plague. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And so everything is gone. Egypt is 
for all intents and purposes, destroyed, sacked. So what's left outside of just light? So God takes away light and says, there'll be darkness over the land so that it'll be felt. It would just be this weight over Egypt. Hopefully, right, surely, after everything, there's nothing left. Would they just finally say and relent, like, you're right, and let the people go. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses to let the people go. Now, what we get to next week is the Passover, the 10th plague, one of the most amazing, crazy, and beautiful stories in the whole scriptures. But we have to begin to sit back and, and think through all of this stuff like, right, God, God, you're a, God's about his, his own glory. Now, now, that sounds like a terrifying thing. Like, again, if, if it was me up here asking you guys to do everything for the glory of me, that's just absolutely crazy, but we cannot fathom the reality that God is entirely not us. In all the ways that I am imperfect, selfish, proud, angry, filled with malice, sin, and frustration, God is not. God is perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly gracious, perfectly hopeful, perfectly, perfectly, perfectly. Insert a positive adjective. He is those things. So him being about himself, God being about his name and his glory, more people serving, worshiping, praising him, leads us, leads them to greater love, greater holiness, greater righteousness, greater grace, greater mercy, greater purpose, greater etc., etc., etc. If God was about us, this whole thing falls apart. Hear me, if God was primarily about you and me, I'm telling you what, maybe it's just me, that is a burden I cannot bear. If God's primary thing was trying to fulfill my happiness, that's a burden I could never bear. Because the second I'm not happy, okay, I look upward and say, that's on you. Because you're about me, God, right? Like, you're about my happiness. You're about doing things for me, right? That, that's why you came. That's why you did these things. That's why you delivered. No, no, no. If, if that's true, the burden on us to always be happy is ridiculous. The burden on us to always appreciate that life is great is way too heavy for me to bear. I couldn't do it. Now, some of you, maybe your life has always been great. It's great right now. And by God's grace, it will always be great. Like, you'll never have any money troubles. No one will ever die. Like, you'll outlive everyone in your family. Like, everything will be phenomenal for you. Probably not going to happen. But if it does, great. For the rest of us, this life is super hard. This life is filled with pain, filled with brokenness, filled with unmet expectations, filled with betrayal. And there's some good mixed in. I'm not trying to be total Debbie Downer. I love my life, but let's be honest. It's a broken world. And if the weight was on God being about me predominantly, the expectation I'd have to live in to bear that burden would crush me. God being about God is the best possible 
news that we can receive. And if you don't believe this story, I want to read some verses to you. Okay? If you don't believe the main premise, and maybe you don't, maybe you think that's one story. It's one story where he's trying to show his power. Let's just look at some scriptures, okay? And and hear me, this has to be underneath everything. It has to be underneath the way you understand your scriptures, has to be in the way you understand what's happening in this text, in every text, in the way you understand your life, okay? Isaiah 43, God created us for his glory. Isaiah 49, God, God called Israel for his glory. Psalm 106, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He parts the Red Sea for his glory. Romans 9, he raised up Pharaoh for his name. Ezekiel 20, God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. And you'll even notice if you go look at Ezekiel 20, the peas, he's even saying, I didn't save them because of you. I, I, I saved you because of me. You're a stiff-necked people, he calls Israel. He's like, you guys are a mess. You're just all jacked up but I still love you. Why? Because that's who I am. Because I'm about my name. Okay, I'm about my glory. So I save because that's who I am. I save because you, you're not awesome. I'm awesome. Okay, Ezekiel 20. Uh, Deuteronomy 9. He drove out the Canaanites for the glory of his name. Ezekiel 36. Restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. John 7, 18. Jesus sought the glory of the Father in everything he did. Matthew 5, 16. 1 Peter 2. Good works are done for the glory of his name. John 14. God is glorified in the answering of your prayers. Now, God, God answers all your prayers. Did you know that? He doesn't always answer them the way you think you want him to answer it, but he's always doing something that he sees that you cannot see. And he's doing it, right, to show who he is to you. That he would be glorified. He would be revered. He would be loved. Right, as much as I can, when my kids come to me and ask for something, as much as I can, I try and say yes and deliver. They want a donut, they're getting a donut, if they can, right? Because I want them to know who I am. I'm a provider. Again, sometimes it's, oh, that just means you're hungry, you're eating celery, right? And that's also me being a good parent. God answers prayers for his glory, not primarily for your happiness and joy. You hear me? God does not answer our prayers primarily for your happiness and joy. He answers them primarily for his glory. The byproduct of him answering that the way is our joy. Okay? Going on. Romans 3, God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. John 12 and John 17, Jesus endured the last hours of suffering for the glory of God. John 16, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. I'll say again, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God, meaning that the spiritual gifts, all the things the Spirit does, those are not the Holy Spirit's ministry. They are the means to fulfill his ministry. Why do we have spiritual gifts? That the Holy Spirit might glorify Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. 1 Peter 4, serve in a way that glorifies him. Ephesians 2, God is reconciling the world for his glory and name. Listen, there's a few more if you still don't get it. 2 Thessalonians 1, Jesus is coming back because he misses us and needs us. No! Jesus is coming back to bring glories to his name. But we think it says that kind of stuff. That Jesus is coming back because he really just wants to be with us. Now hear me, does he want to be with you? Yes. Is that ultimately why he's coming back? No, it's for the glory of his name. That he would be celebrated, his name would be made much of. John 17, seeing and enjoying God's glory as Christ's chief aim for man. Habakkuk 2, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. 
Romans 11, everything that happens will point to the glory of God. Revelation 21, the sun will be replaced with the glory of God. In the new heavens and the earth, there's no longer a need for a sun. Why? Because God's there. Everything the sun does, God's like, no, I'll do that. I'll be the sun. I'll replace the sun. He's the true and greater sun. Lastly, Ephesians 1, God predestined us for adoption to the praise of his glorious grace. Why are we saved? Why, why did God deliver Israel? For the praise of his glorious grace. Does he love you? Yes, more than you can fathom. Is he for your good? Yes, more than you can fathom. Is he, insert all the great things we, we know about God's treatment of us? Yes, more than you can fathom. At the end of the day, ultimately, it is accomplished and done because of the praise of his glorious grace. And that is spectacularly good news for us. Because he is who he is, the cross happens. Because he is who he is, the resurrection happens. Because he is who he is, eternity happens. You don't want God to be primarily about your happiness. I guarantee it. You want him to be about his glory. Because when he is fully glorified, we are fully joyed. We fully experience and know and worship and sit in his holy presence because of who he is, not because of who we are. There can be much rejoicing, worship, and celebration. The last verse I leave you with is in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Why will God not cut us off when, hear me, we deserve to be cut off? We just do. And, and that's, and again, like, don't hear that as like, you're all bad and we're terrible and you shouldn't love, like it's not you should hate yourself talk, it's God is that majestic, that holy, that perfect, and we just fall madly short of that. If we're honest with ourselves, now we try and do our best, I get that, but hear me. He does not destroy us because of his namesake. Instead, he destroyed his own son. Because God is about God, he put his wrath upon himself and not you. Because God is about God, he bore the weight of your sin instead of you having to bear it yourself. Because God is about God, you and I live and breathe and can actually have an opportunity to love and serve one another. This is why it is so massively important and so massively true that there is a way that Christians, we are to live our lives. We are to love our neighbor. We are to sacrifice for the poor. We are to move to the hurting and the broken and the oppressed is because God is who he is. But if God's primarily about your happiness, don't do any of that stuff because he'll figure out a different way for you to be happy. 
but we must be the people that God has called us to be, and that can only be true if we realize God's about God. He's about his glory in the world, and it is the best possible news that could ever happen. Let's pray. Guys, this is a hard truth in, in, in a lot of ways, if I'm honest, Lord, just to think through the lens of who you are, what you know, and what I don't know. All I know is, God, that you, uh, that you do love us and you have, you have done the thing that we could not do. And God, it was in your very nature to do it because, God, you did not relent. We thank you that in the cross we do find the perfect marriage of love and justice, of grace and judgment, so we know who you are. And God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that, God, you are about your name because in that, God, we just celebrate our freedom this morning freedom from trying to present ourselves in a perfect manner, freedom from having to bear burdens and weights that we cannot bear, and a freedom, God, to then be the people you've called us to be, to love people the way that you've loved us, to serve people the way you've served us. God, much glory and praise and honor to your name this morning and every morning. It's your name we pray. Amen.